Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. I want to look at something today that all of us are pretty familiar with. I actually named this the wedding invitation. How many have ever gone to a wedding? How many have ever been invited to a wedding? I've been to several. I've, I've officiated several. I filmed several, so I kind of get that whole vibe. But how many of those, there's always a party time. What do we call it? The reception. And everyone's just waiting to get to the reception, especially that crazy uncle who loves to drink a lot. Yeah, it's fun, right? You're like, I had a Christian wedding, no booze. Hey, that's okay. I'm sure Uncle, uncle so-and-so didn't show up. <laughs> but we love that reception part. And you know, many of us are probably familiar with the first miracle that Jesus performed. It was actually at a wedding. It was turning water into wine. How many are familiar with this? And like many things in Scripture, you know, I know I say this a lot, but I want to remind us that if we're not careful, we can read over the deeper meaning of what's being said. I think Scripture is so cool. Uh, you know, the apostles say that it's living. It's a living word. And how many have ever read a text and just... Maybe you read it a thousand times, and then you read it a thousand and one, and suddenly something jumps off the page, and it just speaks to you. I believe it's living. I also believe it's layered. See, we can so easily just read over things and go, oh, that was a great story. You know, that was, that was a cool story about Jesus at that wedding, turning water into wine, and then we move on. But there's so many different layers that sometimes we can miss if we're not careful. Something deeper that's going on. And one thing that, that I've realized in, in really this ministry of Jesus is that he was known as a subversive. He had the subversive mission to change the way that we thought about God in this world. He was really challenging. If you look at every parable, every story, even the miracles, even sometimes the day in which he performed the miracle, he was really challenging a system, a religious system of his time. And so I want to look at this as we talk about the wedding invitation in John chapter 2. Let's turn to John chapter 2. You can follow along also if you have the Bible app. You can follow along on that as well. Uh, We put the notes right there for you. But I want to start here in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Three days later, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at a wedding feast in the village of Cana in Galilee. So how how many know what's going on? We're setting this up. They're at a party. They're at a wedding. Verse 2, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited and were there. Can you imagine that? How excited they were. We're going to another wedding. And and these weddings normally didn't last just one day. I mean, these were like days of partying. It was like, man, we are, the Jews are good at this. When we're having a celebration, that's got to go a week. We got a funeral, man. I mean, we got to weep and cry and stuff, but we also got to drink and and celebrate too. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on here. In verse 3, look at this. When the wine was all gone, say the wine was all gone, Mary, the mother of Jesus, says to Jesus, they don't have any more wine. Now, this in itself, we can just read over, but this is, this is the mother of Jesus going, uh, Jesus, we're out of wine. This is not a good thing, right? Jesus replied, mother, my time hasn't yet come. You must, look at this, you must not tell me what to do. Now, this isn't my favorite translation because it can seem kind of disrespectful. Um, I like one translation that says this, what, madam, is this to me and you? So when he says woman, when he says, you know, mother, when he says, it's more like ma'am, 
madame. It's, it's very respectful. He's saying, what is this to us? My hour has not yet arrived. That's basically what he's saying. It's not time for me to do miracles yet. This is what I love, the very next verse. I mean, if, you're, if, you're a, if you have a family, how many here have a family? You didn't just crawl from, out from under a rock, right? This stuff gets me because the mom says, hey, we're out of wine, Jesus. You need to do something about it. He's like, listen, mom, I respectfully have to decline here. There's nothing I can do. It's not my time. Look at her. Look what she does. She goes right to the servants. She doesn't talk to Jesus again. She goes to the servants and says, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Can you imagine Jesus going, okay, mom, you put me on the spot now. I mean, can you, I mean, he's saying, mom, I can't do this. She goes, hey, servants, do whatever he asks you to do. And he's kind of like, come on, mom. That's what I love about, we, we started watching uh, uh, a show called The Chosen. Anyone seen this? And although there's points where I'm like, ooh, because the theology isn't quite there, what I love about it is it shows the humanity of Jesus. It just shows Jesus is real. And so, you know, in these moments where Jesus is performing miracles and talking and even joking and cutting up and even kind of razzing the disciples, I'm like, okay, that seems more like Jesus to me. Like, he didn't walk two inches off the ground and float. He was real. And so we see this conversation. Now, look, I want us to really begin to pay attention to verse 6 because something begins to happen here. They're at the feast, and it says there were six stone water jars there. Say six stone water jars. They were used by the people for washing themselves in the way that the religion said they must. Each jar held about 100 liters. Now, there's something in this story that we have to key into. Because it's being very specific on these water jars, these stone water jars, which were used in a religious ritual of cleansing. Verse 7, Jesus told the servants to fill them. Fill what? The stone water jars. Get this. Fill them to the top with water. Then after the jars had been filled, he said, Now take some water and give it to the man in charge of the feast. The servants did as Jesus told them. And the man in charge drank some of the water that had now turned into wine. He did not know where the wine had come from, but the servants did. He called the bridegroom over and said, The best wine is always served first. Then after the guests have had plenty, the other wine is served. Now, how many could guess why? Yeah, it's cheaper, but once you've had enough wine, you don't care what the wine tastes like at a certain point. Anyone here ever had more than one glass of wine? I know you're holier than me, but but look at this. But you have kept the best until last. Look Look what verse 11 says. This was Jesus' first miracle, and he did it in the village of Cana in Galilee. There Jesus showed his glory, and, look at this, his disciples put their faith in him. Now, this word miracle in the Greek text, it actually says sign. This was the first sign. If you look at the Gospel of John, there's seven signs. And we could get into that sometime. I thought about putting together uh, a whole um, series on that. Because it's really cool to see the progression and how John writes this. And then what we see, what's really cool, this is a side note, is that in his resurrection, that's literally the eighth sign. That's the eighth miracle. And if we look at how numerically things work for Jews, the first seven would complete a week, and then the first day was the first day of new creation. Isn't that cool? So it's really cool how John writes this. See, when we got to understand when they're writing these inspired words, I'm going to say it. I always say this. We, we picture 
like Holy Spirit takes someone over and they just start writing stuff. That's not how scripture was written. Holy Spirit doesn't possess people and force them to write. They were inspired by spirit, but they still wrote from their perspective and they wrote with agenda. If you look at all four gospels, there's an agenda. There's a certain people group they're writing to. That's why you can read and go, wow, he told the story a little differently. Yeah, different group of people he was writing to. Doesn't make it not true, but he's right. And then there's specific things. So when they write, there's a reason they write what they write. Very specific. They want us to pick something up here. But I was thinking about this, this whole we ran out of wine thing, and Jesus fills up these, these six clay jars, these stone jars that were made for the, the traditional washing. I think that's a pretty awesome wedding gift, wouldn't you say? I think that when, when the mother of Jesus, when Mary came to Jesus, it wasn't like, hey, man, I'm running out of wine. I need some more. You know, in this time, this was a, a, a ceremony and, and celebration that would last for days. And, you know, if you ran out of wine, that could bring shame to the bride and groom. It could bring shame to the household. And I, you know, that's just another layer of it. We could see that Jesus was like, you know what? I, I don't want them to experience shame. Oh, imagine that. Jesus doesn't want us to experience shame. He's even willing to turn water into wine so they wouldn't experience shame. I think that's cool. Now, maybe that's just my own way of seeing things, but I see things maybe through a different lens, which is Jesus and his love for us. But I think this is an awesome wedding gift. I mean, he's six huge jars full of the best wine, Right? It wasn't just like Boone's Farm. This was like, some of you, see, the laughing ones. I know you picked some up last night. I'm, this was the best wine. Not only that, I like to do math and dig in, and I thought to myself, well, if he records that the stone jars, I figured out the liters, it'd be about 15 to 20 gallons. That's a total of about 120 gallons of wine. That would fill almost 4,000 four-ounce glasses. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Now, that's a party. But I want to think about the radical symbolism in this event, in this first miracle of Jesus, the idea of, you know, turning water into a completely different substance it was nothing new to the people of Israel. It was nothing new to the Jews. In fact, uh, Moses, the lawgiver, whom they looked to for guidance, and he was one of the patriarchs. How many remember the story in Exodus 4 and verse 9 where he turned water into blood? It was a sign of judgment, a symbol of God's judgment. And now we see Jesus here kind of flipping the script because he comes with the power to turn water, not into blood, but to turn water into wine, which according to the psalm, Psalm 104 specifically, is a symbol of God's blessing and joy. So anyone there would have thought, wow, wait, wait, wait. He turned the water into wine. And then they would have thought back several thousand years to, oh, Moses, our patriarch, he did this, but he turned it into blood. It was God's judgment. But here Jesus is doing it differently. It's turned into wine. This is God's blessing and his joy. Something is changing. See, in the Hebrew scriptures written long before Jesus showed up on planet Earth, God had actually prophesied through the prophets that one day he would raise up a prophet like Moses. Say like. What does like mean? Like means similar in some ways, but also different in other ways. I'd like to sum it up like this. 
Moses and Jesus offered people freedom from whatever enslaved them, whether bondage to Egypt on the one hand or bondage to sin on the other. So we can see that Jesus is really fulfilling prophecy, saying, I'm that prophet, but I'm offering you something different. It's not just, you know, releasing you from bondage of Egypt. They knew the story. They, know their, they knew their ancestral story. But Jesus is saying, I want to free you from the bondage to sin. And here's the thing, is Moses achieved that freedom for God's people through the giving of the law and really through that judgment but Jesus offered it by demonstrating God's grace and mercy. So can you see that? This is just one little part that we can see through this. Now, of course, as we look at this miracle, it would not be wrong to acknowledge that Jesus' message was one of blessing and joy. But as I thought about this miracle, as I thought about this sign, I realized that Jesus was not adding to the established religious tradition of his day through this miracle. He was subverting it. So let's talk about this for a few minutes. Let's take another look at the vessels that Jesus uses for his first signs. Anyone remember? Six clay or stone jars. They're the water jars. So John here, in the retelling of the story of this miracle and this sign, he says that Jesus did not have the wine served out of ordinary wine jars, which is really interesting to me. They said that they ran out of wine, right? No wine left. That means that there's some empties laying around somewhere. There's got to be empty wine skins, wine jars, whatever it is somewhere. Why didn't Jesus use those? Doesn't that make more sense? I mean, why would you use the stone jars that are used for ritual cleansing? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me, but we're going to look into this a little deeper, and we'll see why Jesus did that. Jesus directs the servants to use the sacred containers set aside for a religious ritual. So in the time of Jesus, you would find that one of the traditions of some of the religious groups, especially those who were affiliated with or called themselves the Pharisees, they did what was called the ritual hand cleansing. And so when they would come into a home, and you would even see this if you watch The Chosen, when they enter into a door, they would wash both their feet, but many of them would cleanse their hands. This was really important to them. It was a symbol. When they would dip it into what they believed was sacred water, it was a a ceremonial symbol of their desire to remain pure from the sin of the world. And so this was an important thing to them. So my question is this, why would Jesus use these sacred stone jars for the water-turned wine. You ever think about that? I mean, again, like I said, there must have been other containers available. I mean, they just, they just ran out of wine, so there had to be at least a few wine jars around. So why the stone jars? Why the sacred icons of religious tradition? Why, Jesus, would you intentionally do something so potentially offensive? Can you, can you see if there's someone around who would see that as a sacred icon and suddenly they're serving wine out of it, do you think they ruffle their feathers a little bit? How many know that Jesus probably did it on purpose? Like I said before, Jesus would literally heal people on the Sabbath and then he'd get in trouble for it. But what he was saying is, listen, these are man-made laws. Why would God not give grace and mercy and healing to someone because of a, of a day that you've made more holy than it really is. 
And that's something we could get into another time. But you think about Israel coming out of Egypt working 24-7. I mean, they barely had sleep. They worked seven days a week. And in the creation story, even God rests. I mean, the Sabbath was all about, guys, you need to learn how to take a rest. But that doesn't mean that we neglect people and make the day more important than people. Does that make sense? And so here we have Jesus doing something intentionally that potentially could offend some people. And so what I see is in the story, we're faced with a very interesting yet undeniable fact. Through his first miracle, Jesus intentionally desecrates a religious icon. Come on, Jesus, what are you doing? Why? It just seems like he's always messing with people's minds. He's not trying to hurt people, but he's trying to get us to shift in our thinking, right? He purposely chooses these sacred jars to challenge the religious system by converting them from icons of personal purification. In other words, only the most holy are included in the symbols of relational celebration, community. In other words, everyone is included. Do you see this? Jesus was very intentional here. See, Jesus takes us from holy water to wedding wine, from legalism to life, from religion to relationship. Get this, from exclusion to inclusion. This is the way of Jesus. In fact, in his book entitled Selling Water by the River, Mennonite author Shane Hipp said this about the miracle. This is so beautiful. Listen to this. As disruptive as Jesus can be, he is not in the business of destroying the good that went before. He did not smash the stone jars. Instead, he included the jars in the new thing he was creating. Isn't that awesome? He used them in a different way. What Jesus did may have been offensive to those steeped in the traditions of religion, but get this, it wasn't destructive. It was profoundly creative. Isn't that beautiful? I believe that's something that we have to see when it comes to how Jesus navigated life while here on earth. And I even believe how Jesus is now. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the perfect picture of who God is. The Apostle John tells us that Jesus came to explain, to show us who Heavenly Father was, because guess what? We got it wrong at times. And so I believe that Jesus is the perfect lens in which we can see all of Scripture through. And so when we see this, we see that Jesus was being creative here. I mean, do you see what's happening here? Uh, Do you see how even we can follow this example of Jesus? Just like Jesus, when we move from one revelation, one way of thinking to another, listen to me, we don't have to destroy everything that was before. We can hold on to, or even, I love this word, repurpose the symbols and the stone jars, if you will, of what we previously believed. And this is one thing that I've seen. There's this word that's been floating around for you know, a good few years now called deconstruction. Anyone heard this word? And at one point, I would say that, yes, I was deconstructing. But I think a, a better word would be renovating. Because sometimes what I've seen, I've seen people who love Jesus, who love Scripture, 
but they deconstruct to a place where there's no faith left. And I feel extremely blessed that I had people on my journey who would come along beside me and say, hey, hey, listen, you're not crazy. I know you're thinking outside the box. I know Holy Spirit's bringing you, but, but this is okay. This is okay. And what I would do is I would, I would hold on to the good foundational things. I would even repurpose some of the things that, that meant so much to me before. How many know that each place on the journey, it doesn't mean that you're wrong in that moment. And just because you move on from a place doesn't mean that someone else is wrong and you're right. I said it earlier, we can't be dogmatic about our theology. I mean, pretty much everything we get between is between Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. And how many know we can all interpret things different? I mean, you, go, you, just, you can type in Google or YouTube, just type one theological idea, and you'll get 60 videos from different points of view. And so I think it's important that when we're moving, we, we don't just throw everything out. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? When you're doing a renovation, you may pull old things out. I mean, you might, even, you might even tear the whole house down, but you probably keep the foundation and you rebuild on it. You know, even, even here, um, some of you actually were members of Trinity Lutheran. We, we bought this building in 2016 from Trinity Lutheran, our awesome brothers and sisters up the road, preaching the gospel, loving people. We're all part of the body, amen? But when we came here, we noticed something that there were certain things that just, they didn't work with who we were. Not that Trinity Lutheran or the Lutherans are doing it wrong. We chose to go with chairs rather than pews, you know. It's not as comfortable to lay on, I get it. Um, you know, if you were here beforehand, you know, this whole area, it was beautiful. It was set up in a certain way that worked for liturgy and, and for ritual for the Lutherans and not for us. And so we tore a bunch of stuff down. I, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but I think the band used to be over here, and there were these beautiful oak, uh, I mean, like real oak, not like the cheap fabricated veneer stuff, like oak, uh, like uh, what would you call them, Bruce? Boards. Thanks, Bruce. I learned a new word today. Um, so they're oak boards. How do you spell that, Bruce? There were oak boards, but they were set on the angle. They were beautiful, though, weren't they? And so we thought, we're not going to throw this away. This is beauty. And so we repurposed. Look back there at the sound booth. Embarrass everyone working back there. Hard, doing good stuff. Wave at us. <laughs> but you see all around the top of it there and other places in the building, we repurposed the oak. Why would we throw it away? It was a good thing. And so I believe that Jesus was doing the same thing. He's like, listen, I'm not going to just smash and obliterate anything from what you did, but I want to repurpose it. I want you to see things from a different light. Isn't that beautiful? See, Jesus seems to be saying that his message of love, which, by the way, let me just say this, is a radical, accepting, embracing, and engaging love. We can't get away from that. That it's too great to be contained by the old ways of religious tradition. See, his new wine demands new wineskins. We see this in Matthew chapter 9. And so Jesus, I just love the way that he goes about this. See, sometimes we, the religious people of Jesus' day get such a bad rap. It wasn't people. It was systems. Jesus was coming against systems, 
worldly and religious systems. Do you get this? In fact, there are many religious leaders of the day that followed Jesus. And you can see the progression of some of these where they were even there at the last. They, I mean, even when Jesus was crucified, this is beautiful to me. You know, for a Jew to not have a burial or a tomb was a disgrace. And criminals, if you're charged as a criminal, you did not get a proper burial. It brought shame to you and your family. And usually there was nowhere to put these bodies, so they would throw them into a place called hell, or actually it's called Gehenna. Has anyone heard of Gehenna? They would throw these bodies and they would burn them in Gehenna or in hell. We could literally say they were on fire in hell where the worm, how many of those maggots usually show up when, when meat starts to rot? So literally this would happen. In fact, that's even where they would throw. Think about this when people would come to offer sacrifices on a yearly basis. I mean, the number of people and sacrifices, we're just, I mean, we clean this up on our head, but like when they gutted these animals, where'd the stuff go? History says they actually threw it over the back wall of the temple down into Gehenna. <laughs> so you had all this, ro- I know it's pretty gross, right? I mean, it's just what they did. I know I'm getting off subject, but it's just cool to see the history of how all this works. But Jesus was saying that I have this new wine and it needs new wineskins. There's just a new way that we have to look at this process. I think it's so important that we see this. And so even in this process, you'd have religious leaders who would follow Jesus. And one of those religious leaders with another brother actually begged to have the body of Jesus so they could give him proper burial. Why? Because they were followers of Jesus. They loved Jesus. These are religious men of a religious system who began to see there's a new way. Isn't that beautiful? And I believe that Jesus, I mean, even on the cross, I'm going so far off notes today, but I'm just, I'm amazed at the love of God for us. That even while we were sinners, while we were, we considered ourselves enemies of God, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not holding it against us. Jesus on the cross says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, how could we live if we began to realize that people who don't know who they truly are may say and do some things that are very hurtful toward us? But I believe there is a place, and we have the power through Jesus Christ to say, I forgive you. You don't know what you're doing. Sometimes we think they do. Now, again, I know that can become toxic. I'm not saying if you're in a bad relationship to stay there because I forgave them. You may have to remove yourself from a toxic, abusive situation. In fact, do. Not maybe. Do. But we can forgive people just like Jesus forgave us. And so we see this idea where where Jesus uses these, these ritualistic Um, you know, stone pots for a new purpose. But what he's showing us is, listen, we don't have to throw everything out, but there's a new way of seeing. There's a new way of believing and thinking. And what you'll find, especially if you're open to growth, how many here open to growth? I am. Is that we have to come to a point, and most likely you're going to do this more than once on your journey, where we begin to let go of our religious assumptions. 
and we actually let the Jesus of Scripture be who the Bible says he is and not who 2,000 years of church history and tradition, tradition say he should be. There's this, this funny quote. It says that God made us in his image, and then we return the favor. Right? We made God in our image. And, and you know, again, when we're, I mean, people, I've, I've sat at, at tables with people who believe differently than I do, and they said, well, it looks to me like you're trying to uh, make God fit into your idea of things. But the thing is, I could say the exact same thing about them. We all have a tendency to do this. And so that's why I believe it's important that, I mean, listen, not everyone has to study Scripture. It's, it's funny. I have a few different people lately who have just been reaching out and asking me some theological questions. We've been talking about stuff. And you have some that are like, okay, okay, so, so what Scripture and what verse is that? And, and what, where'd you find that? And what, and I love that. I mean, cause I'm a digger too. And, and it's, and I would say it like this, it's so easy. There's no excuse anymore because you can jump online now and you can pull up Bible hub or you could go to blueletterbible.com and you can actually look at the original meanings. How many know that if just one word changes in a sentence, it could change the whole meaning of it. But you know, I do love, I have this one gentleman in particular and I'll just say, well, and I'll just put it out there, and his response is, seems good to me. I'm like, well, I could give you, I don't need all that. It seems good. It lines up with what my spirit is feeling, with what Holy Spirit's been showing me. My experiences seems good to me. I'm like, wow, that's awesome. But some of us, like me, I'll be like, all right, Tom, help me out, man. I'm stumbling over this scripture. Tom, you know, Tom, Pastor Tom Shannon, Diane, beautiful, beautiful people. But he's so much more versed in this than me. And sometimes I go, oh, oh yeah, let me show you. In the original, and then he loses me. And then I have to say, stop, go back again. But that's good because we can dig and it's okay to dig. But my point is sometimes what we do is, or we don't do is we don't allow Jesus to be the Jesus of Scripture and just let Jesus be who Jesus is and not put words in Jesus' mouth. And sometimes when we read something, if it doesn't seem to line up with this uh, radically accepting, embracing, and engaging love, maybe, just maybe, we should dig a little deeper into the original language. And most of the time I went, oh, something else was being said. This, this wasn't translated well. Whether intentional or not, it just wasn't translated well. And so it's important that we study. And so for many of us, we've come to a place where we really desire to learn more about and more from the Jesus who thinks that our world needs more wine and less religion. We need more of the new wine, the new way of thinking, the new way of being. And I would say this, to be honest with you, it's only new to us. It's the way that creation was always meant to be. So when we say new thing, it's like, whoa, this is brand new. But it really isn't. It's just new to you, which is great. I tell the story about I really wanted, for one Christmas, I asked my dad, I said, I really want a racetrack. You know those slot car racetracks? Anyone? Anyone like 50 or over? No? And so I just thought it was so cool. I remember back in the 80s when they came up with this new concept of slotless 
Anyone heard the slotless tracks where you could actually change lanes? You'd push a button on your trigger and it could change lanes and stuff. That was so cool. You're not with me. Okay, whatever. But did that really happen? Anyway, but I was so excited that I said, Dad, I really want to race a racetrack. And, you know, I know this now, but, you know, when you're a little kid, you don't know that you're necessarily poor or don't have a lot of money. You're like, I have a roof over my head. It's warm in the winter. It's hot in the summer because we didn't have air. We had fans, though. Turn that fan on right at you, you know, at 1,000 miles an hour. But when, when Christmas came around, I remember I opened all my presents, and I was, I was thankful, but I was kind of like, man, I really wish I would have got that racetrack. And I remember around the back, my dad says, oh, so, oh did, you, did you miss a present? You know, if anyone knows my dad, it's kind of like, did you, did you miss something? I think there's something around the corner. I remember grabbing that present out, and I opened it up, and it was this racetrack. It was brand new to me. He found it used at Salvation Army and put it in the box. But guess what? It was new to me. I got a racetrack. It was amazing. And so I think sometimes what happens is, think about this. Whenever Holy Spirit moves you to something, because I see all these debates about, you know, the end and what this means and what that means, and people argue, and they're like, well, you're just trying to bring new stuff. Eh, if you really dig in deep and you look at the early church and the early church fathers, these are not new concepts. They're just new to us. So I say all that to say don't be afraid of new ideas. Follow Holy Spirit. Let's talk together. Let's work together in this. But I think that we can agree that Jesus wants to bring us from religion to relationship from legalism to life. You know, the writers of the four Gospels, they use this extraordinary Greek word to describe the effect that Jesus routinely has on his religious audience, and it's the word scandalon. Say scandalon. And it means this. This is a Greek word. It means a stumbling block, an offense, a scandal. How many have ever sang the song, Jesus is the rock of my salvation? And so what I see here is Jesus is a rock. But this is a rock that can either trip you up or be a foundation you can build your life on. Did you catch that? Something that can trip you up. And and too often, those of us in his day and including today, if we hold on too tightly to religious preconceptions and ideas and theology, and we refuse to move, we will sooner or later become offended at Jesus. Jesus, you've tripped me up. This doesn't go along with my Pentecostal or Baptist or Calvin, uh, you know, Calvinistic or, or Lutheran or Presbyterian or word of faith ideas. This is something different, Jesus. You're offending me. We get offended by Jesus even when he calls us out on things that maybe we believe that really aren't good things to believe. How many know that when, when, we, when we hit eternity, I think we're all going to go, oh, my gosh, I was wrong on some stuff there. Whew. At least one thing, right? So I think it's important that we see this. We can become so comfortable that we become unteachable. To catch that, we become so comfortable sometimes that we become unteachable. So we become offended unless, of course, we do what many Christians throughout history have done and we tame the historical Jesus through years of conservative tradition. Guess what? Let's not do that. Let's take the journey together with an openness to grow and mature. Can I get an amen? 
So again, Jesus wants to take us from water to wine, from legalism to life, from religion to relationship. So what can we learn from this? Is there a way that we can grow and mature in Christ? Even from beliefs that we once held dear to us, ideas, theology, ideas about God and others that that we've held so close to us, can we release those things and come into new ways of thinking and believing and do that without destroying everything that we learned from the past where we use those things, either repurpose or keep some of those things as a foundation to continue to build our life on, our journey on. I believe through the example of the first miracle of Jesus that we can. So maybe today, for some of us, is a day to determine to do this, to actually begin to let things go and no longer, uh, maybe let things go that no longer work for you. I'd like to say it like that. Because some things, have you ever noticed that you, I don't know how to put this in words. Have you ever been going along on the journey and there's certain things you've been taught and, and you feel like you believed, but then it starts to become a little bit um, uncomfortable? You're just kind of like, man, is that really how God is? But then you're like, oh, I don't want to say anything out loud. No, I'm, just, I'm being honest because some people will get really offended. They'll get offended at Jesus and the Holy Spirit working through your life. I know pastors who have literally just asked questions like, you know, what about gone? Excommunicated. I know people who have started thinking through ideas that are different and, and even just going on Facebook, which is probably the last place you should do it. Man, I was wondering about unfriend as if they're going to rub off on you and take you down a weird path or something. We just get so weird about it. But don't let that scare you. I really believe the Holy Spirit has put Faith City Church here to be a safe place to ask questions. I say it pretty much every Sunday, but if I say something that doesn't jive with you or you have questions, come talk to me. I'm not dogmatic about it. It's just where I am at this point. And maybe you'll say something by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I go, wow, okay, okay, that may, okay, yeah, that's good, that's good. Listen, I don't want to become unteachable. And I just love that we have a place where we can ask questions and we can think through a process. And and many times the questions that we ask, let me say it again, they're not new questions. They're questions that the early church wrestled with. But sometimes we don't see past 500 or 1,000 or 1,500 years ago, we just don't understand it. The, the Western, um, you know, evangelical church only knows what they know, but sometimes when you start digging deeper, you're like, oh, my gosh, the early apostles and their apostles and their apostles believe stuff that I never thought you could believe. It's, it's really awesome. And so I encourage you to continue on that journey. So maybe today is a day for you to determine. I, I'm just going to I'm going to leave some things. I might even repurpose some of those things for new thinking and new ways of being in this life. I mean, there's such a freedom and fulfillment in knowing that that is okay. We can ask questions. We can dig a little deeper. I believe that this is necessary for growth and for maturity. Amen? So I'm going to wrap it up like this. You can go ahead and stand with me. I want to say this. You've been sent a wedding invitation. Say, I'm invited. Through this story, 
through the gospel. You can say it if you want. You can say anything you want, Bruce. You taught me the meaning of a board today. That's amazing. <laughs> but you've been sent a wedding invitation, an invitation to trust God and welcome the new. Say, I welcome the new. Awesome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this relationship that we have with you. Something that maybe we don't always quite understand. I mean, a connection to you that's personal, yet corporate. I love the words of the Apostle Paul. We are all the offspring of God. In him we live, move, and have our being. That tells me that we're connected to you. Now, for some of us, maybe we haven't awakened to that truth yet. But if we're connected to you, if we're all connected to you as a source, that means we're connected to one another. No wonder you inspired Paul to describe the church as a body. A body that's connected. Different parts playing different roles, but working together to achieve one goal. So we thank you for this revelation. I pray that you're continuing, Holy Spirit, to stir things up within us. To just like a snow globe that gets shaken up, to stir some things up so we can begin to see, oh, I've been seeing through a glass darkly, as the Apostle Paul says. I've been seeing through layers and residue from ways of believing, indoctrination, experiences in life, trauma that I've gone through even as a child. I'm seeing things through this and bring us to a place where we realize, Jesus, you want to heal us from all those issues in our soul. And because you're love, you're not forceful. And there comes a point where we have to say, yes, I trust you. I give you permission. Work on those areas in my life. And so I pray right now that whether we're here live or someone's watching live or watching this later, the Holy Spirit, you are working through our lives. You are beginning to pinpoint that your light is beginning to expose things in our life that are lies, things that aren't true about us or others or you, um, those planks, so to speak, that Jesus speaks of, that you're beginning to expose those, not to bring us shame, but to make us aware so we then can say, here, Jesus, you can have this. I receive your healing in this area of my thinking, in this area of my will, in this area of my emotions. I receive that healing virtue. We thank you for that. We thank you for your love and your grace that you are not going anywhere. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. You're on the journey with us. Even when we fall off the road into a ditch, you're still there in the ditch, wooing us, bringing us back up to the road. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.